I'm Joe Devine, and welcome to Whiteboard Football Extra. Today, I'm joined by Paul Ansorge to discuss the Brazil World Cup in 1950, home to the game now nicknamed Maracanazo, arguably the football game which had the most devastating effect on a nation of a team involved. Before we start, I'd like to remind listeners that throughout the summer, we're running a series of competitions to celebrate our 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Check out the channel for the latest competition video, which will include details of how to enter and what prizes you can win. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. This particular World Cup, 1950, must have had a slightly surreal feel to it, being the first tournament since the end of the war, um, with countries like Germany and Japan unable to participate and other countries like Hungary choosing not to attend. It must have been uh, quite a conflicting tournament in that regard, because obviously on the one hand it might be seen as, as a celebration and the world getting back on its feet after the conflict. Um, but on the other hand, it, it probably would feel quite surreal, uh, given given the context only a few years earlier. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting thing to think about, isn't it? I mean, I mean, on one hand, you have the complexities of international politics and how they affected this tournament. But on the other hand, you, you also have the fact that um, there are a lot of minor controversies about various different teams and uh, whether or not the World Cup would be taken particularly seriously. So 1950, you'd think that maybe England would have had a pretty good excuse not to join in in 1950. Rationing was still happening in the country, the the scars of war were still very fresh, but actually this was the first World Cup that England never attended because they'd never gone before over disputes about payments to amateur players. Argentina didn't intend the 1950 World Cup, but it was nothing to do with international politics. It was because they hadn't defended the 1949 Copa America title in Brazil because their players had been absent from the squad over a pay dispute. So you have this kind of double, in a way, that the team's missing because of the nature of international relations. So Germany and Japan were literally not allowed to attend because they weren't FIFA recognised yet after they were literally under occupation. Germany was divided into four quadrants and occupied by... Um, four different uh, powers, European and American. Uh, Japan was under American occupation. Um, so you have those those kind of countries not coming. You have the countries behind the Iron Curtain. Who It wasn't a universal um, Soviet bloc boycott. It was, but, but significant swathes of those teams didn't come. But that wouldn't have been, that almost wouldn't have been that odd because there wasn't yet the expectation that every country in the world competed in the World Cup. That would come over the next sort of 8, 12, 16 years. Hmm. And it's interesting as well for Brazil, the hosts, because I think a, a lot of people, including myself before I did a little bit of research, wouldn't really have known much about Brazil's um, or, or, or many of um, South American countries' involvement in the Second World War. But Brazil, in fact, were involved. And I think in 1942, they were forced to declare war on Germany after uh, the Nazis had sunk a couple of their commercial vessels. I think they killed around six, 700 people during that time. Um, and their army, which was a little bit smaller uh, than some of the European countries, I think they sent off 25,000 people 
25,000 people. So they were directly affected in the war themselves. Uh, I suppose that's why they call it a world war, Paul. Yeah, and and especially the Second World War. I mean, not that not that World War One didn't have a truly global component because it did. There were countries from all over the world involved in that war, but not quite to the same almost universal extent as World War Two and and Brazil and Argentina and those kinds of parts. Of that whole swathe of the world is a, is a brilliant example because it it's such a long way from the theatre of conflict, but none well from any of the main theatres of conflict but nonetheless still dragged in like you say by by circumstance almost um and you wonder whether the nazis really even were aware that they were blowing up brazilian ships you know um uh, so it's and and in 1950 you know if you think about what 19 how 1950 relates to 1945 so if you think about the 2012 London Olympics, that's as long ago to now as we record this as the war was. So think about how fresh that seems and how not that long ago that seems. That's the reality of the end of war. And of course, it was a war with a very long tail. Um, like I mentioned, England having rationing and, and there were kind of there were issues, especially in, in Europe and Japan of places that were kind of still living with the physical scars of the wars. And the World Cup is an interesting notion for that for that reason, um, within the context of, of international relations, because at its core, it's competitive. Um, the countries are pitting themselves against each other. What, what do you think its function is within international relations? For example, people often describe football tribalism as a sort of outlet and um, supporters, you know, will shout and, and, and cheer on the team. And sometimes that's seen as a, a kind of essential that's that's needed. Um, and it's even sometimes sort of, I don't know, posed as a alternative to violence. Um, is is that fair? And, and how do you think that might have uh, affected the, the 1950 World Cup? Well, the the broad question is an absolutely fascinating one, isn't it? I mean, if you think about say, sport in the 80s, the, the general consensus among the people that, that pushed for the Olympic movement in the late 19th century and this, the also the kind of original foundations of the World Cup, it, it really is a somewhat idealistic notion about bringing countries together and, and competing in the arena of sport so you don't have to compete in the arena of war. That that ideal sort of died a little bit in in the 1980s when you would get the the Soviet bloc boycotting the 1984 Olympics because America had boycotted the 1980 Olympics in Russia. Um, and, and, you know, in, in 1950, I, I don't think too many people were boycotting this specific World Cup because of politics, but there, there were definitely people who were putting their kind of political considerations before their sporting considerations. And now, you know, the role of tribalism in football on a national scale is really fascinating you you see it played out so one of the reasons that it's very unpleasant to go and watch England it can be very unpleasant to go and watch England away now in the here and now is because uh, a lot of their fans are kind of extremely nationalistic a lot of the the chants are very nationalistic not in a kind of national pride way but in a you know no surrender to the IRA and all this kind of stuff that happens at England games um and and 
really some really vile chants and all that sort of thing that that happens and then you you see scenes like we saw in um the 2016 euros uh, when croatia played when there was there was serious infighting uh on the on the terraces among Croatia fans because there were kind of national issues being played out there. Um, and, and, you know, national pride is a, is a dangerous thing to stir up too much of. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you've read the script of one of these, this is a bit of a spoiler, a bit of advance, the trailer, let's say, but in a, in a couple of weeks, um, people will see the, um, the one of these that we did about the 1978 world cup. And, and that's a brilliant example of, uh, nationalism taking sport and using it to blind people to the reality of what's going on essentially so it can be like an amazing source of national pride i mentioned the number the 2012 olympics i think in a way that was a very pure source of national pride wasn't it for people in this country it was one of the rare truly celebratory things that happened um in in relation to nationalism but yeah it's it's a complex gray area and and i wonder whether I mean, I think the evidence would suggest that sport certainly doesn't put an end to war. Of course it doesn't, because we've, we've seen lots of international sporting tournaments and stuff, and war certainly hasn't ended. Well, to, to be fair, though, I, I would say that the reasons that wars start nowadays are more for sort of calculated geopolitical reasons rather than for uh, human human emotion reasons, if that makes sense. So I suppose in th- theory it could still be an outlet... Um, as an alternate to to uh, the the feeling of or the compelled feeling of violence, I mean, I, I guess so. But I think I think if you if you kind of in, massive international sporting events are a modern phenomenon in, in terms in historical terms, uh, and there's like there was there was plenty of kind of. Uh, hope that you know this would be bringing people together and they would see that they have more that unites them than separates them and i mean yes wars are fought for geopolitical reasons but um that that doesn't necessarily like especially during the cold war when there was this kind of emphasis that actually bringing countries together would be a fantastic you know outlet for for that and and a kind of a way of humanizing the uh, people on the other side of the conflict and all that kind of stuff well, um, how dare you argue that football hasn't solved the world's problems, Paul? To football itself, though, let's let's discuss that now because uh, we haven't really yet. Um, you mentioned that the England team failed to progress through the group stages. I- I'm unsure, actually, and this is not as a result of um, uh, research I've done for this particular podcast, uh, but I do remember reading some time ago that um, an early England team sailed to. South America for a World Cup. I can only assume it was this one. Because it was. Am I right in thinking? Yeah, it was. This was the first one that they attended. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it took them over a month. I think it took them six weeks to sail to the World Cup. In um, in which time they practiced uh, a little bit of football on the boat, which uh, is, is 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 a fascinating thought, isn't it? But um, you you mentioned that they 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 didn't progress through the group stages in part as a result of their one nil defeat to the USA a team of amateurs, including a hearse driver and a dishwasher. Um, what did the England team look like at this time? Would we recognise any of the names? Because you know, we know that 16 years later, of course, they went on to win the tournament on home soil. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure, I haven't done absolutely exhaustive research and compared the squad side by side, but I'm pretty sure no one from this team was around 16 years later. I mean, you wouldn't mm. really expect that, would you? Four, four World Cups later, there's not normally too many too many players. Um, Buffon. Yeah, he doesn't count. I mean, if yeah. Wales got to loads of World Cups, then Ryan Giggs, sure. But, sure. Um, well, they Wales did absolutely amazingly in this World Cup, it has to be said. Yes, um, they did. But, uh, there's lots of very famous names in the England side. Uh, Jackie Milburn, who, of course, is a legendary Newcastle number nine, of whom there's a statue outside St. James's Park. Billy Wright, who anyone growing up in the 1980s will remember, uh, was, well, and I guess the 70s and 60s too, was for a long time England's most capped player, and certainly most capped outfielder. Uh, Stan Maud. Who, who, who took his um, his position before Wayne Rooney? Uh, oh, I think there's a few people that took it before Wayne Rooney. So I think David Beckham got more caps than him. Okay. I, I think um, Peter Shilton might have done, but don't quote me on that. Peter uh, In fact, I, I, actually, I'm, I'm unsure that Wayne Rooney is the most cap. I think he's just scored the most goals, hasn't he? Yeah, he has got a lot, a lot of caps as well. Hold yes. on, hold on, Joe. I'm sat next to the internet. I'm not going to let the people leave this podcast without knowing. Most... Well, that's good. The wonder of the internet will teach us many things. So hopefully, Paul can uh, find out the caps on this. Uh, it's interesting though to think about an England team that far back in here. Of course, we've been talking to Alex about tactics as well, and we can be pretty sure that around this period, uh, the team probably would have been playing a two-three-five, very attacking outlet. Um, in the most recent video, which I believe uh, will have been out last week, uh, we cover England's uh, 66 tactical renaissance. And uh, one of the interesting things about that is Nobby Styles, uh, who uh, I dare say wasn't around in 1950, was uh, brought in and used as the first uh, sort of modern defensive midfielder. Fascinating stuff. Um, he, of course, went on to rack up a lot of caps. But what's the verdict on uh, Wayne Rooney, Paul? Uh, Wayne Rooney is the most capped outfielder. Peter Shilton still the most capped player. Um, Billy Wright is had 105 caps, which kind of keeps him in the top 10, um, which goes Shilton, Rooney, Beckham, Gerrard, Bobby Moore, Ashley Cole, Bobby Charlton, Frank Lampard. Billy Wright, there you go. No, oh, thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. Thank you, Wikipedia. Um, so the the you, you mentioned 1966, who were of course famously the wingless wonders. Mm. Uh, this was a team with wingers, uh, of whom some of the most famous uh, of the team were. So Stanley Matthews, Tom Finney, both in the team. Uh, Stan Mortensen. Um, so lots of lots of players that people will have heard of. Mm. Their post-war record was 23 wins, four losses, three draws. They they were known as the kings of football and not just by the English press. They you know, I mean Stanley Matthews was a was a world star and this was a team that was of whom great things were expected. Yeah. Now you mentioned that boat ride which I think is is partly why they they didn't get the result, but I saw somewhere quoted that bookmakers were offering five hundred to one before the tournament on um, on the USA beating England. Now I find that impossible, almost impossible to believe, because 
I can't imagine that bookmakers, even in 1950, were not aware that you don't offer 500 to 1 yeah. on a one-off game, <laughs> however much the opposition are poor. But the USA had lost their previous seven internationals by a margin of 45 goals against two scored. Right, so, so we can see them as a sort of um, you know pastime San Marino or something. Exact, exactly, and this is the thing, because it's the USA, you know, not that they're... A global football superpower, but they're a very decent side and, and, and have been throughout, you know, uh, well, throughout all modern recent World Cups. But mm. this really was a team of kind of, of kind of complete amateurs or, or semi pros at best. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it was um and and actually you know Stanley Matthews didn't play in that game because he was he was rested by Walter Winterbottom the the England manager um oh you mentioned 1966 worth saying of course that Alf Ramsey was in the squad in for England in 1950 as a player fascinating stuff well let, let let's let's take it away from England and go to the Maracanazo which is of course the nickname for the uh, the final game of the 1950 World Cup in which Brazil uh, lost uh, unexpectedly, it's fair to say, to Uruguay. It's often discussed as a national tragedy, Paul. Indeed, you refer to it uh, in the video as a bit of a psychological blow that would take the team of Brazil that is quite a long time to recover from. Um, they were beaten 2-1 in Brazil, uh, outplaying, uh, well, Uruguay outplayed the expectations. And as you know, there, there were also things like there were suicides in, in Rio. The nation was devastated. Can this be compared to any other loss in the history of football? Of course, I'm thinking primarily about Brazil's 7-1 loss to Germany in 2014, which is another uh, game often cited as perhaps their lowest moment in, in, in football. Yeah, and, and the fact that that happened the next time they hosted a World Cup is kind of remarkable, really. There's, there's definitely... might well have been at... No, it wasn't at the Maracanã, was it? The 7-1, no, I don't think. No, it wasn't. Um, but it would have been pretty incredible if it was. First of all, wouldn't be one of these podcasts, Joe, if I didn't talk about a mistake I made in the video. Oh, um, go on then. Because uh, I, I said that they changed their strip from blue and white... Uh, to yellow uh, after that game but of course it their strip was generally all white they just played that final game in uh, in a change strip because Uruguay had the the you know white and blue shirts uh, that we still associate with them today but okay. but, but An nonetheless understandable error Paul yeah nonetheless they did change their national kit on the basis of that game <laughs> they ran yeah. a competition to see who you know to get someone to to design a kit for them. Well, that, I mean, to... that, that does suggest something of a, of a psychological reaction, doesn't it? Because that's that's akin to, I don't know, me going out in the street and uh, either being mocked or being mugged and then me never wearing the same clothes again for fear that the same thing might happen. Exactly. And, and you know, I described it as a psyche shattering, a, a blow which shattered the national psyche. And, you know, there were appeals to, for calm on the radio after that game. There really were reported suicides, which is a horrendous thought if you think about it. And I think the reason that, that the Maracanazo looms so much larger than the 7-1, although the 7-1 was horrendous for Brazil, first of all, um, by 2014, Brazil was a very, very different country. And there were large numbers of people that had campaigned quite vociferously for Brazil not to host a World Cup. So it didn't quite have that same completely binding universal effect that it had in 1950. And the second thing is, 
Brazil had already won the World Cup in their national uh, psyche, much more so than in 2014 when it was, first of all, it was a semi-final. And second of all, there weren't amazing, amazing things expected of that Brazil side. In a way, you could say semi-final was perhaps performing above expectation for 2014, although the nature of their defeat obviously wasn't. But in 1950, they'd already won. So... The, the the fact that we could talk about the Maracanazo as being the World Cup final, but it wasn't. It just it was just the last game that was played in the second group stage, which the winner of that group would be the winner of the World Cup. In the first two group games, Brazil had absolutely smashed the two European sides that had made it into that um, final pot. Whereas Uruguay had drawn one game and scraped a 3-2 win in the other. Um, I haven't got the scores in front of me, but I think it was 6-1 and 7-1 to Brazil. It was, so. it was 6 and 7-1. Right, so this was, this was an absolute walkover. And then Brazil went ahead in that final game in which they only needed a point and they'd been completely untouchable all the way through the tournament. And here were kind of, you know, plucky neighbours Uruguay who didn't really have all that much to offer, couldn't have even beaten Spain, you know. Um, so just the idea, this was, it was a procession. It was supposed to be a procession, this this last game. It was supposed to be a, a celebration of all things Brazil. And instead, it suddenly went really badly wrong. Just so, so I think the gap between expectations and reality puts the Maracanazo above pretty much any other football result ever in terms of its effect on the populace. Well, it's also written itself into uh, into Brazilian history and culture. Uh, at the moment, we're running a new series on the channel, and I should clarify that I'm not saying that our vid- our video has become an essential part of Brazilian culture. That's not <laughs> that's not at all true, Paul. But uh, we are running a new series on the channel at the moment called Classic Goal, in which we take a look uh, take a look at the tactics behind famous goals from the history of football. And for the first week of the World Cup campaign, we chose uh, Alcides Gagia's winning goal for Uruguay during the Maracanazo, which just bobbled past Barbosa, the Brazilian keeper. Um, and there were a couple of fascinating comments from viewers on this video, which I'd like to take a moment to, to take a look at. Uh, J5276 told us that there's a famous story in Brazil about a man who travels back in time to prevent this winning goals. Um, in the story, he gets to the stadium just in time to shout a warning to Barbosa, but unwittingly he distracts the keeper and causes the goal he sought to prevent, uh, which is the classic time-travelling paradox there, but uh, fascinating, and I'd, uh, I'd love to see an original version of that. Um, also, Hugo Iwata left a comment to talk about Barbosa and his sad story. Uh, Hugo says he lived the rest of his life as an outcast. Once he was at a grocery store and a woman a woman saw him and said to her small child, son, this is the man that made Brazil cry. Uh, then he decided to leave Rio as a result of things like that. And at the 1994 World Cup, some ex-players were called to give motivational speeches to the team, but he was explicitly prohibited from doing this as he was seen as a bad luck omen. Um, he died in 2000, and maybe if he'd lived until 2014 and seen the 7-1, says Hugo, uh, he could have gone with a little peace in his heart, knowing that he wasn't the scapegoat of Brazil's greatest humiliation. So obviously Hugo thinks that the 7-1 was more humiliating. Um, it's interesting, uh, that, Paul, because I think 
do you think sometimes we might take football a bit too seriously? I mean, that feels very much at this point, Joe, like a rhetorical question. You've just yes. described an entire country ruining a man's life. For... Well, f- funnily enough, it was rhetorical because I've continued to write, not expecting you to answer. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, inaccurately also, I was going to say, I might add, um, as it's, actually, it's arguable, and we talked about this in the, in the classic classic goal video and in the tactics video, uh, that the, 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 the real villain, uh, depending on how far back you extrapolate, was either the fullback Bigode, who was um, beaten for both Uruguay goals, or the fact that the coach changed the system that, that had been supporting the team so well throughout the tournament for the final game. Um, and uh, w- which, in a way, left left Bigo sort of stranded. He he wasn't familiar with the WM that the coach decided to play, simply for the for the last game. So it's a bit of an bit of an odd one. Um, and yeah, I find that all all the more strange, perhaps, that Barbosa as the goalkeeper. I suppose not strange, given that he was the goalkeeper. But you know that people perhaps weren't familiar enough with football and how it works to to then just blame him for for the next seventy years. Are you and Alex trying to get the family of the fullback or coach to <laughs> receive the same treatment? Is that what is that what's happening here? No, I'd like I just like someone to uh, come out and admit that it wasn't Barbosa's <laughs> fault, or for us to just take a look at the actions of um, of a nation. And I mean, I, I would like to clarify. You, you may have heard me uh, chuckling earlier. Um, unfortunately, as I had already begun to chuckle, you started to talk about suicides in Rio. That wasn't what I was laughing at. What I was laughing at was the idea that there were calls for calm. On the on on national radio in Brazil. I mean, I find I find the how wrapped up the country was in the tournament quite amusing. And I wonder to take it back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Could this possibly have something to do with you know the the context, the state of the world at the time, or is it simply a result of Brazil just being uh, you know absolutely in love with football? No, I I think it's it would be really. Um naive and kind of idealistic to think that it was just about the country being so in love with football. Brazil is a fascinating country. I once ended up um, listening to a talk by a writer called David Goldblatt, um, who's written extensively about football in Brazil. Um, and and he kind of uh, cited basically Brazil's history kind of runs in parallel with World Cups and things that happen at World Cups dramatically affect the future of Brazilian teams and, and the kind of almost the style of play reflects what was happening in the country at the time and all this sort of thing. So Brazil and football are, are so... They're wrapped up in a kind of codependent relationship. Basically, it's like it's not—it's not a beautiful, amazing thing that a country cares that much about football. It's a real problem if you're getting people who are going to kill themselves, and like people like Barbosa, whose lives are entirely ruined forever because they conceded a goal. And you know that that '94 story—I nearly put it in the video, um, but it's so—it's just run out of time. But it's—it's it's such a such a horrible story when you 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 kind of think about empathizing with a person whose life was entirely ruined by a kind of momentary mistake which as you say like no goal is ever entirely just the goalkeeper's gut fault maybe not no no goal but very very few goals um there's there's a there's a lot goes into these things so yes of course the, the People need to take football an awful lot less seriously at a club level. And I, I would suggest that, that in 2017, it's actually club football where this stuff happens more so than international football. But certainly in 1950, uh, international football was, a, was, a, was an outlet for 
some pretty deep emotional forces. It's an interesting notion, that isn't it? I think we could uh, we could spend hours talking about the uh, the shift to uh, I suppose individualism uh, compared to nationalism, but but alas, we have no time for that now, Paul. We're at the end of the podcast. Uh, I would like to point out that it's interesting that you mentioned David Goldblatt, as I believe that one of David Goldblatt's books is actually the prize uh, or one of the prizes that's going to be given out to viewers over the next uh, six or seven weeks as part of the World Cup. Uh, competition that we're running. Joe, this is incredible. I would just like to assure the listeners that I did not know this until this <laughs> very moment. So that was not a deliberate like uh, segue, but I'm, I'm glad to have offered you the gift of an easy transition into the close of the show, which you I've now ruined segue. by interrupting you. So. No, that's fine. This is just part of your of your clumsy style, Paul. Don't <laughs> Listen, um. I'm off. I'm not having that. <laughs> um, but yes, of course, we're running, uh, as viewers will probably already know um there was a video on uh on the the youtube channel last week there'll be another one today explaining how you can enter this week's competition last week's winners uh will have i think there were three copies of lutz fanon steel's autobiography which we were going to give away very uh, uh hilarious read i should say uh, so i think the the winners of that should have been announced already we're recording this before they've been picked so i can't announce them on here um, but there'll be another competition. I'm not entirely sure what the prize is for this week. I will find out. And in fact, I may have already mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, depending on where I am in time and space. Uh, but we are running it for the next five or six weeks. I believe a David Goldblatt book or three uh, is one of the, pr- the prizes for one of the weeks. So perhaps, Paul, you might wish to enter that week also. Um, do I not get... Can I not just get... Cause me and you this thanks very a- much Paul uh, <laughs> lovely to speak to you and we'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks thanks everyone now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment our new investment product offers competitive returns no maintenance fees and flexible online access to your money make the reliable investment in reliable energy the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment to find out more go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com.